<laughs> so this, in the past couple weeks, we have learned that we are worshipers. That was week one. Second week, we learned that we, so we are worshipers. We're hardwired to worship something, right? And we have to choose what we worship. There's no option to not worship. We will either worship God by choice or we will worship something in our life. And so that's what this discussion has all been about. We learned that the battle is really for our hearts and for the throne of our hearts and that battleground where the God's battle is our heart. So we learned that we have to guard our hearts because guarding your heart is where, or your heart is actually where everything flows from, okay? Uh, the week after that, we talked about the gods of pleasure. Last week, we talked about the gods of success and how money tries to offer you what only God can offer you, and that is, uh, <laughs> wow, it's, it's, you want me to turn it off? Who? Oh. We good? Okay. And how, how, I'm sorry, where was I? Uh, it's how money can uh, try to offer you the security, the hope, the, the um, I'm completely lost now. I'm sorry, I just got thrown. Money tr- tries to offer you what God wants to offer us, okay? Amen? So this week, we are going to talk about the gods of love. Because last week, some of you said, well, I don't have any money, so none of that applies to me. So we're good. That sermon wasn't good for me, but I'll recommend the podcast to some rich people I know. All right, great. But so this week, we're talking about the gods of love. And gods of love... These are relative to everybody in this room because everybody is either already in love, wants to be in love, is chasing love. We love love. We love to be in love. We love to be in relationships with love, whether that's romantic love, whether that's a brother, sister, mom, child. Everybody wants to be loved. And so I myself am victim to this, to love. In the past, I fell in love, and I fell really, really hard, so hard that I had to make a decision to break off the relationship because it was controlling my every thought. And what was wrong with her, you may say? Well, nothing really. She was sweet. She was holy-ish. <laughs> she was well-known and liked in the community. Uh, in the long run, she wasn't good for me. She was kind of weighing me down, and that wasn't good. And uh, she's all I'd think about. And I would say that that was unhealthy in more ways than one. I mean, uh, she was a temptress. And uh, when her hot sign was on, there was no way I could resist. So I had to break up with Krispy Kreme donuts and because uh, I had it bad. Now, some of you guys here, you say, well, maybe I'm not in love with the food, and that's fine. I wasn't really in love with the food. I mean, I was kind of in like, you know, like heavy like with it. It's the only food in the world that looks solid when you put it in your mouth that melts. I'm pretty sure you can drink it through a straw. I'm pretty sure. You could, nobody, nobody knows what I'm talking about? Okay, anybody ever been there when the hot sign is on? Okay, and the, you go there in the hot, and they just, you just, you don't have to chew. I think it's the perfect old person food. Take out your dentures, just put it in your mouth. Mm. It goes down real easy. Anyway, I had to break up with them, but maybe you've never had it bad for a donut, but maybe you've had it bad for a person, and that person consumed your every thought. They controlled your behavior. When they were in the room, you maybe acted different, or maybe you dressed different. Maybe you tried, decided to show a little more cleavage, or decided to behave a certain way or gain a certain uh, skill or play a certain sport or whatever it is to attract that love, you, you wanted that. And so all of us in here I know are, re- are, are in that experience. It's all common to all of us here, okay? And uh, so let me ask you something. Who do you say I love you to, right? Who do you love? Is it a friend? Is it your spouse, your children? Who do you love? And I know it's a word we toss around a lot, but the answer to that question of who I love may reveal a lot about your heart. Because the name that comes to your mind may reveal a love that you put your hope in and therefore has become a false god. Okay? Is it possible that a relationship with a person has replaced your relationship with Jesus? That you are living out of response to that relationship with them 
instead of out of, respo- out of response to a relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to read you a story really quick. This is Shannon's story. And, uh, and Shannon, um, she doesn't go to church here. I kind of found this story online, but I felt like it went with today. And I know you're not supposed to stand in front of a bunch of people and read, so I apologize. But I am going to read it to you. I tried my best to memorize it, but the, it, it's just better to read it to you. So I'm going to read her story to you. And this is Shannon's story. It says, every neighborhood had a, a tomboy. And when the guys get together to play some ball, they're usually not surprised if one of the guys is, well, a gal. It's classic playground tradition, except that everyone figures that tomboy will grow up to be another traditional figure. And that's the girl next door. Shannon showed no signs of that direction, and a tomboy since childhood, she continued to push the masculine side of her personality to the front. She came to think of herself as a living, walking mistake. When God made her, she figured he poured a boy spirit into a girl body. And such a mindset is going to lead sooner or later to frustration and despair. And there were reasons. Shannon had been a victim of sexual abuse. That experience damages people in different ways, and for Shannon, it was an indication that being a girl placed her in danger. Being pretty or feminine enhanced her as a target, and things were done to girls, and if she wasn't a girl, well, maybe they'd leave her alone. And Shannon also came out of her abuse with a distorted view of relationships with the opposite sex. Though she hung out with guys and participated in Sandlot games with them, she had no clue how to relate to them outside of athletics. Most of all, she believed that she had no real value as a human being. Otherwise, why would anyone have done that thing to her? Sound like anybody you know? The abuser was a male figure who was supposed to be a figure of trust. So who or what in life could be counted on? The question seemed rhetorical because there was no apparent answer. Shannon's only response was to toughen up. She wore her hair short, focused on sports, and stayed grimy and sweaty as much as possible. It matched the dirtiness she felt on, it on the inside, and she was sarcastic and assertive, but it was only a mask to hide the depression and confusion beneath the facade. All of this was relatively manageable until she hit puberty. Before that, Shannon could simply be a little girl climbing trees, stealing second, and playing catch. But adolescence was approaching, and things were starting to change. The girls painted their nails and talked about clothing, and she didn't fit into that world at all. And the dynamic was changing with guys, too. It wasn't going to be, it wasn't, uh, going to be cool to be a tomboy much longer as they began to relate to girls through attraction rather than athleticism. Shannon had no place at all. I'm a mistake, a misfit, she thought. I have no future. As she thought about it, she realized that she craved love, to give it and to receive it. Love could rescue her from shame, and it could make her feel like a person of worth. Like many adolescents, she sexualized the feelings in her heart. So desperate was her desire for caring that she reached back to the time of her abuse, and she took hold of the idea of sexual expression she found there. It was the most obvious way to get attention, to find some form of love. It was unhealthy. It was self-destructive. But it was all she knew. She understood the deal. I will consent to this. Let you do that. And you will give me love and acceptance in return. But of course, no real satisfying connections came out of that arrangement. She offered sexuality, and that's all she got back. Throwing herself at boys didn't make her feel any more complete as a girl. She coveted love and acceptance from her own gender. Almost inevitably, she began to wonder about a lesbian identity. She pursued the question not overtly, but through pornography. Again, she was exploring the question through sexualizing it. This hadn't helped her understand boys, and it didn't help her understand girls. Once again, her pursuit of love didn't bring her any sense of acceptance or belonging. In fact, the harder she chased it, the lonelier she felt. She wanted to love and to be loved, and Shannon was coming on to guys sexually, yet consuming same-sex pornography privately, trying desperately to satisfy the hunger in her heart for intimacy. But instead... She felt a growing sense of isolation. 
I'm going to put Shannon's story on pause here. Shannon's story matches so many of ours, where we take what's happened to us and we search for love in the same way that she did. Now, not everybody's the same way, and this may not be your experience, but it could be where we sexualize those feelings and we say, all right, that's what happened. And for Shannon's case, that was abuse, and she turned that way. She used that as a tool to gain love, to gain approval, and all she found was emptiness. But it's not really Shannon's fault. See, this is, this is the direction of our current culture. This is everything that everybody pushes us toward. We, we take romantic love and we say, this is what it is to be human. This is success. It's in all of our movies, our TV shows, The Bachelor, and all of its sub-shows. You guys watch them. I know you do. There's people looking for love, right? There's, there's even like million-dollar hookups. Like, I don't, I don't know. There's millionaires that can't find a girlfriend, and they have somebody hook them up. It's, it's really ridiculous. Uh, the show How I Met Your Mother. The guy's all about finding real love, right? Chick flicks. All aggrandized love is the ultimate achievement in life. That without love, you're nothing individually. And that's a lie. The Beatles say all you need is love. Burt Bacharach says what the world needs now is love, sweet love. How many of you wish I was singing these? Nobody? Okay, cool. All right. All right. Just one over here. Thank you. Love you. <clears throat> Robert Palmer might as well face it. He's addicted to love. And Meatloaf says he would do anything for love, but he won't do that. Now, anybody here ever wonder what the that was? <laughs> Is it like, well, I won't put the toilet seat down, or I won't yeah. shave my unibrow, or I won't watch a chick flick? I don't think this is too much to ask from the future Mrs. Meatloaf. You know what I mean? <laughs> These are simple things that they can do. And so, anyway. But all of that poses a great question. And this is, this is my point today. Would you do anything for love? If so, then romantic love has officially reached God's status in your life. Think about that for a minute. We're going to jump into the Bible because there is a story in the Bible that I want to draw attention to. And uh, if you don't have a Bible today, if you just raise your hand and let us know that you need a Bible, we have Bibles here for you. Uh, we would like to give them to you as a gift so that you can take that home. You don't need to return it to us. We just want to bless you. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we will give those to you. Okay? Everybody good? We got one more right over here. Anybody else? Fantastic. All right. So we're going to jump into Genesis 29. And this is the story of Jacob and how he met his wife. Now let me explain who Jacob is briefly, okay? We've got this whole Jesus culture thing that we're dealing with here, right? This is, that's why we're here. But Jesus comes from a long line of Jews. It's Jewish, Jewish history and how he impacted the world, right? And it's all why we're all here. So this line of Jews started with one guy, a promise made to one man, and that was Abraham, okay? Abraham was promised a child that would be, be the beginning of, of so many people, a generation of people, that, uh, that it would outnumber the stars in the sky. And God makes this promise to Abraham. Abraham walks out of his tent, looks up in the sky, and says, wow, that's a lot. Now, this was a big deal to Abraham because he and his wife Sarah didn't have a kid yet. And so God promises him that. They do have a child. He's like 90. She's 90-something, and he's, I want to say 103. I, I don't have the exact number right, so some of my theologians will let me know later, I'm sure. I'll get emails and texts about that. That would be wonderful. Thank you, guys. <clears throat> but... Um, <laughs> so Abraham as a kid, his name is Isaac, okay? Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is a guy who is a trickster. He's a con artist, he's a liar, he cons his brother, he cons his dad. He gets into a whole heap of trouble and he has to leave his house because his older brother is a big, hairy bear of a man and he's going to kill him with his bare hands. You know what I'm saying? 
This guy is going to mess him up. And so Jacob is on the run, and Jacob winds up at his uncle Laban's house, okay? So he winds, that's where our story is going to pick up. Jacob walks onto the scene. He's running from his family, as well he should, because his brother's going to kill him. And he winds up on the scene. He asks somebody, has, does anybody know Laban? He's my uncle. And they said, yep, he's over yonder. Yonder means over there, for anybody who didn't know that. And uh, so <laughs> Jacob goes over, and he runs into Rachel, okay? Now, Rachel is his cousin. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me jump into the verse. I'm going to read you this part, and, uh, and I'm going to tell you something odd about that scene, what, what happened here. So we're in Genesis 29, 16 through 25. I'm going to read you the text. We'll come back to it in just a second, but I'll read you the text. So if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. It'll also be up here as it is right now on the screen. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man, so stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban, Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Okay. So this is like a scenario that belongs somewhere on like reality TV. Okay. This is like a Jerry Springer special. It's probably two hours worth of investigating what in the world just happened. But let me break it down for you. Before I get there, though, Jacob shows up on the scene and he's looking for his uncle okay this is why this scene is weird to me he's looking for his uncle and the verses before this here's what happens they say yep he's over that way jacob goes that way he runs into rachel and the first thing he does to rachel is he kisses her nobody has a problem with that okay so kissing cousins is cool in this room awesome all right you guys are great (laughs) it's just strange to me so he kisses her The next thing the Bible says, if you read the verses before it, the next thing the Bible says he does is he starts crying, which I would probably do too if I kissed my cousin. Nobody thinks this is weird? Fantastic. All right. Moving on. The next thing that happens is Rachel runs and gets her uncle. Jacob's in trouble now. But instead what her uncle does is he runs on the scene and he kisses Jacob. Nobody thinks this is weird either, huh? Now I have to admit it probably was not like this open mouth kind of kiss thing that I want to imagine in my head just because it's funnier that way but I don't really think that happened it was probably more of a traditional greet a kiss just greeting somebody but it's funny to think that way and so I'm going to memorize it the way I want to you guys can look at it the way you want to but the scene just to me is a little weird it is weird that she's his cousin because later what we see is is that Jacob spends time there he's so thankful to be at his uncle Laban's house because he's been on the run and this is a safe place for him And so a month later, Jacob falls in love with Rachel and confesses his love for his cousin to his uncle. What else? Maybe it's a distant cousin or uncle. I don't know. But anyway, we know that they're uncle and cousin. So Jacob falls in love with her, and he says to him, I want to serve you for uh, Rachel, right? And uh, so Rachel is beautiful and easy on the eyes. But we also see that Laban also has another daughter, an older daughter, and her name is Leah, okay? And uh, here's what the Bible says about Leah. He says that she had weak eyes. That's the only thing it says there. Did you see that? 
It says he had a daughter, Laban had a daughter, Leah, and she had weak eyes. But Rachel was beautiful. Listen, I don't think the weak eyes meant that she had to have like a heavy prescription and wore horn rimmed glasses. I don't think that was the case for her. I think saying that she had weak eyes was a compliment, okay? And to be honest with you, if that's the greatest compliment he could give her, then Leah was in trouble, okay? And, uh, and so, guys out there, if you're, one of your friends is trying to hook you up with a girl and all they can do is compliment her on her eyes, well, you get the picture, right? She's probably not a Rachel. She's probably more like Leah. And so, anyway, um, Jacob serves seven years. He says, I want to get served seven years to get Rachel. So he's going to work on the farm. He's going to take care of the sheep. And he's going to uh, take care of, of things for uh, Laban. And so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of her love. Isn't that romantic? That's so irrational to me. But that's, but that's the way love is, right? Seven years he waited. That's a long engagement, right? And so he decides to, to, do, to do that work. And so, but that's, that's what our emotions do to us. We become irrational about situations. That's why this message may be a little tough for you today. Because our emotions get involved and we don't see things clearly when it comes to love. And so after Jacob serves his time, we read in verse 21, the King James Version says it this way. And I liked it better than, than the way it's set up there. It said, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete and I want to lie with her. It's not so romantic anymore. Good feeling gone. <laughs> and so Jacob is asking Laban for Rachel because his time is over. And you can't blame the guy. It's been seven years. He's ready. Long engagement. He's ready to do it. But all of a sudden, there's a soap opera twist in the story in verse 22. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. Now, you have to understand, here's the situation. It's very customary that the older daughter get married first, right? Leah's the older one. And so dad says, well, I got to marry off Leah first. This is the way we do things around here. So he throws a big feast. Now, how did all this happen? Because for those of you that are in relationships, you kind of know who you're going to go lay in bed with. You know what I mean? So my assumption about the story is dad threw a big feast, talked to Leah about it, and said, keep your veil on until the morning, which may have been customary, may not have been. I'm not real sure about that detail. But he may have had a lot of wine, so Jacob maybe went, a bit, went to bed a little toasty. Woke up in the morning. When morning comes, there's Leah. And Jacob was expecting Rachel and found Leah. And so Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? If you keep reading the story, you find out that Jacob eventually gets Rachel. He has to serve another seven years. So this is 14 years that he's waited for her. And that's like, oh, that's really romantic. That's sweet. But I want to pause that for just a moment. He's still got Leah. And Leah's been his bride now for seven years before he gets to Rachel. Can you imagine for a moment, and this is where I want to land, on how Leah felt? For just a minute. She couldn't even get married to somebody because she was not an attractive girl. Her dad more than likely rejected her. He had to trick somebody into marrying her. How would you feel? You couldn't even find love. Your dad is tricking somebody for you. And so Leah loves her husband and wants more than anything else for him to love her. But he's really not interested in her. He's interested in Rachel. Now, as we read on into the story, we, send, we see that Jacob fulfills his husband's duty, which is to produce children with Leah, but he's not interested in her romantically. He's after Rachel, and all Leah wants to do is be the, the, the center of his affection. 
And so she spends her life hoping and dreaming of the day that she will feel love from Jacob. And really, she makes it her life goal to win the heart of her husband Jacob, and that's what she's put her hope in. And I want to say this, that when we look to someone other than God to complete us and define our lives, it's idolatry. She had made Jacob an idol in her life. His love, that romantic love, became an idol to her. And about the one thing that she's got going for her, that Leah's got going for her over Rachel, is the fact that she can have children. Rachel's having a little difficulty having children, and so Leah can birth children. And this is a big honor. We've talked about this before here. To have children's a big deal because it creates a legacy for the man. It also creates help so that they can have bigger farms. They can have more people. They don't have to pay them because they're slaves. It's family. It's, 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 it's a good thing. And Leah figures, you know what? Now I can have kids and Rachel can't. Maybe I'll be the center of his affection. So we're, we're going to jump down here to Genesis 29, 32 through 35. And maybe some of us here are like Leah. Where we say, you know what? Maybe if I can do this, then I'll be loved. Because here's what she said. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery... Surely my husband will love me now. Son number one. Her focus is Jacob. She just wants his love. She wants to be honored. She wants to be revered for, by him. She wants to be looked at the way he looks at Rachel. You guys know that look? You know what that feels like? You know, your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, the way they look at you, makes you feel good, right? That's all Leah wants. Let's go to the next verse. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. It's two kids down. She's still not feeling Jacob's love. The first kid didn't do it. second kid didn't do it. His name's Simeon. I'm not loved. You ready to go on some more? It's a little more depressing. Again, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. Still, no love. Fourth child. This is where it gets better. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. I want you to see the shift. If you've never seen this before, this was really cool for me when I was studying to see this. Because I was like, all right, well, she's having kids, and she's sad about that. I feel bad for her. But Jacob and Rachel, yay! We can go over here and celebrate that. But Leah is the point of this story. Leah put Jacob as the center of her world, and she stopped that. She said, this time I will praise God. And she put God back on the throne of her heart. And when she did, the behaviors that she was doing, having children, in order to earn Jacob's love, she stopped. That's what it says. Then she stopped having children. Didn't have to work on it anymore. Didn't have to do those things to earn the love or to try to win the affection anymore. She knew she had the affection of her heavenly father. And that was good enough for her. Here's a spoiler alert for you. When you make a relationship with someone else your God, it will eventually be marked with disappointment and bitterness. 
And that's what was happening with Leah. Jacob was her God. She only wanted his love. And I think really it's the idea of love that we worship, right, that we chase after. As children read books that end with and they live happily ever after, and we end up putting that dream on the altar and bowing down to it. In our culture, romantic love is held up as the ultimate human experience, right? It's the subject of books. It's beautiful works of poetry and art are inspired by it. It's the plot line of so many movies, and it's the theme of most every song. And don't misunderstand me. See, these relationships are often beautiful gifts from God. God's the creator of romantic love. Marriage was his idea. He's pleased with love between friends. All this is good. But the problem is, is when those relationships replace him, right? It's not romantic love. It's not just romantic love that can become God. Same thing can happen as parents. When your children begin to dictate your day, when what happens with them controls your attitude, controls your thoughts, whether you find joy only in them or your hope is placed only in them, whether you're happy because they're happy, when you use them as your center, that relationship can become a God as well. And it's the same across every single relationship. Every relationship that you allow to control you that is not Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of your heart is an idol. Ultimately, nothing is more destructive to our love life than to put romantic love on the throne instead of God. It puts incredible pressure on relationships because we are asking them to fill a role that only God can fill. And when we do that, when we put pressure on relationships that way, those relationships will break every time. But I want to challenge you today. If you are having relationships that are broken over and over again, it's probably because they're your center. It's probably because those are what sit on the throne of your heart. I want to challenge you that before you go get on Dr. Phil or before you read the next self-help book or you get into counseling. Counseling's a good thing. I'm just, I'm just saying before you do all those things, maybe Jesus needs to be center of your life. And making him your center will cause all those other things to be put into place. All of those relationships will start lining up the way that they need to. When you live a life in all those other relationships that is out of response to this relationship, it's healthy. So God has ordered our lives in such a way that he has to be our most significant relationship. And if you're experiencing frustration in some of your key relationships, it's because of idolatry. Leah was desperate to find satisfaction from the God of romantic love. And every time she gave birth to a child, she thought, maybe now my husband will notice me. Maybe now he will love me. And she was like Ellen Pompeo's character on, uh, on Grey's Anatomy. You guys know the one. Meredith Grey. When she says to McDreamy, choose me, pick me, love me. Nobody's a fan? Okay. Maybe it's an older show. I don't know. But we all do the same thing. Pick me. Choose me. Love me. I've got great news for you. He already did pick you. He already did choose you. He already does love you. You don't have to chase after it. It's free. I love that the verse ends, that, that the whole story of Leah ends with, 
She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. She looked to God as her source instead of Jacob. Now, Judah may be a name that you recognize. I'm going to tell you that Judah, well, I don't want to spoil it. Let me just go to Matthew. In Matthew 1, it's the beginning of the New Testament. We find ourselves reading a list of names, and these names are the lineage of Jesus, our Christ, our Savior, the reason we're here. And it's not a cool way to start Matthew or to even begin the New Testament, I wouldn't say. Just reading a list of names. But I want to read you the list real quick. Matthew 1 2 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. The child she named Judah, when she decided to praise God, she found purpose in him. That child joined the lineage of Jesus. I get so overwhelmed when I think about how God takes our lives, the mistakes that we make, and he just redeems them. And he redeemed her life. He redeemed her love. And he put him or she put him at the center. And Judah joins the lineage of Jesus. There's purpose in everything. And God had purpose for her fourth son. I'm going to finish Shannon's story and then we're going to close. And I'm sorry I've been a little long today. But I think it's important I go back to Shannon's story. Because looking back, Shannon could never remember pursuing God. What was clear was that God pursued her. It was in her junior year that she met a teacher who was, dedi- who was a dedicated follower of Christ. He let Shannon know he was praying for her, and this led to conversations about God. There was a spiritual void in her life, and she knew it. I need something, she told him. I need something in my life. And so he told her what it meant to find ultimate love and acceptance in Jesus Christ. Come to church with my wife and me, he said. We'll save you a place. And one Sunday, she decided to test it out. She drove across town and found that even though she hadn't even told him she was coming... That weekend, the couple was waiting for her on the back row with a seat saved for her. It felt amazing to be cared about this way. And afterward, at home, she cried out to God. She said, I don't even know if you're real, she prayed. I don't know if I accept all this stuff or not, but I need you. I need something. And Shannon became a Christian. And she reached out to the church. For her, the church turned out to be God's hospital where her wounds could be healed by him. She heard his voice saying to her what, she, what he says to you as well. You are not a mistake. I make no mistakes. In you I made a beautiful daughter whom I love passionately, completely and eternally. Come to my arms and feel the forgiveness that is a forever thing. I have the love and tenderness you have always sought. I have the healing that your soul deeply needs. If Shannon had never met Brian, just the love and peace and acceptance of Christ would have been enough. She knew beyond any shadow of doubt that Jesus completed her, but as she surrendered her life fully to him, she discovered that God had other blessings in store. Shannon and Brian dated for two and a half years, during which time they agreed to abstain from physical affection. Handholdings and hugs were the limit, and Brian understood that Shannon was working things out and he was fine with this arrangement. I just want to be with you, he said. Shannon found how sweet, how enriching the relationship between a man and woman can be when really... Uh, when they are bound by the love and worship of the true God. Shannon's story ends how I'm going to end today. With an invitation 
an invitation for those of you, maybe you, you're already a Christian, but you put some kind of relationship in your life as the center. And that's the way you live, is by pursuing that relationship instead of God. The void in the human heart, though, is God-shaped. It's not mate-shaped. It's God-shaped. Let's pray. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. If you're here today and you don't know this love that I'm talking about, you've never connected with Jesus in this way or God in this way, you've never said Father to Him, He is pursuing you. He's made plans for you since day one. He wants to love you. He wants to be God. He wants to be Lord of your life. And you say, Aaron, that sounds like a bunch of rules. No, it's not. It's a relationship. And he wants to be in relationship with you. If you've never made Jesus Lord of your life and you'd like to do that now for the first time, there's nobody looking around right now. And I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to know that you're here. If you put your hand up and let me know, Aaron, I want to make that commitment today. I want to cross that line of faith. I want to begin a relationship with Christ. If you put your hand up, just let me know you're here. I'll pray for you. Thank you. For those of you that are here today, man, Aaron, I'm a Christian, and I've been walking with Jesus, but I've let something slip. I've made something else more important. I have allowed someone else to control my behavior. They're my God and not Jesus. And I want you to pray for me. I'm going to pray now. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this word that is challenging so many hearts in this room. Just as much as it challenges mine. Lord, I pray for those that are here today that have said, Lord, we want to make that confession of faith. Father, I pray right now that you would flood their lives with your love. That you would wash their sins away. Give them a new beginning. Today's a new beginning. It doesn't matter what's happened in the past. Today is new. And I pray that you show them how to live out each day, Lord. And I pray that they will live that life. As you show them how. As they get into community with other Christians. As they connect in a church. And learn how to live that life out every day. Lord, I pray for all those that are here today, Lord. Even for myself, we ask you to forgive us. We don't mean to do it. We didn't mean to allow a relationship to control us. We didn't mean to allow someone to sit on the throne of our heart. Cleanse us, God. Set us right. Lord, I pray that you go with these this week. And that you bless them. And Lord, as, the, as we leave and we, we, we walk out and, we, and we're repentant, Lord, that's not a horrible place to be. I pray that we're encouraged. Because repentance means we get to start over. Even as Christians, we get to start over. We get to try again. So I pray that grace, that mercy, that peace go with all these today. In Jesus' name. If you have any need for prayer, We have prayer partners that are here.